Part 3, Articles 1 to 3 of the Small Called Articles. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Small Called Articles by Martin Luther, translated by F. Benty and W. H. T. Dow. The third part of the Articles. Concerning the following articles, we may, will be able to treat with learned and reasonable men, or among ourselves. The Pope and his, the papal government, do not care much about these. For with them conscience is nothing, but money, glory, honors, power are to them everything. Part 3. Article 1 of Sin. Here we must confess, as Paul does in Romans 5.12, that sin originated and entered the world from one man, Adam, by whose disobedience all men were made sinners, and subject to death and the devil. This is called original or capital sin. The fruits of this sin are afterwards the evil deeds which are forbidden in the Ten Commandments, such as distrust, unbelief, false faith, idolatry, to be without the fear of God, presumption, recklessness, despair, blindness, or complete loss of sight, and, in short, not to know or regard God. Furthermore, to lie, to swear by, to abuse God's name, to swear falsely, not to pray, not to call upon God, not to regard, to despise or neglect God's word, to be disobedient to parents, to murder, to be unchaste, to steal, to deceive, and so forth. This hereditary sin is so deep and horrible a corruption of nature that no reason can understand it. But it must be learned and believed from the revelation of scriptures, Psalm 51, 5, Romans 6, 12 and following, Exodus 33, 3, Genesis 3, 7 and following. Hence, it is nothing but error and blindness in regard to this article, what the scholastic doctors have taught, namely, that since the fall of Adam the natural powers of man have remained entire and incorrupt, and that man by nature has a right reason and a good will, which things the philosophers teach. Again, that man has a free will to do good and omit evil, and, conversely, to omit good and do evil. Again, that man by his natural powers can observe and keep, do, all the commandments of God. Again, that by his natural powers man can love God above all things and his neighbor as himself. Again, if a man does as much as is in him, God certainly grants him his grace. Again, if he wishes to go to the sacrament, there is no need of a good intention to do good, but it is sufficient if he has not a wicked purpose to commit sin. So entirely good is his nature, and so efficacious the sacrament. Again, that it is not founded upon Scripture that for a good work the Holy Ghost with his grace is necessary. Such and many similar things have arisen from want of understanding and ignorance, as regards both this sin and Christ our Saviour, and they are truly heathen dogmas, which we cannot endure. For if this teaching were right, approved, then Christ has died in vain, 
since there is in man no defect nor sin for which he should have died. Or he would have died only for the body, not for the soul, inasmuch as the soul is entirely sound, and the body only is subject to death. Part 3, Article 2 of the Law Here we hold that the law was given by God first to restrain sin by threats and the dread of punishment, and by the promise and offer of grace and benefit. But all this miscarried on account of the wickedness which sin has wrought in man. For thereby apart some were rendered worse, those, namely, who are hostile to, hate the law, because it forbids what they like to do, and enjoins what they do not like to do. Therefore, wherever they can escape, if they were not restrained by punishment, they would do more against the law than before. These, then, are the rude and wicked, unbridled and secure men, who do evil wherever they notice that they have the opportunity. The rest become blind and arrogant, are smitten with arrogance and blindness, and insolently conceive the opinion that they observe and can observe the law by their own powers, as has been said above concerning the scholastic theologians. Thence come the hypocrites, and self-righteous or false saints. But the chief office or force of the law is that it reveal original sin with all its fruits, and show man how very low his nature has fallen, and has become fundamentally and utterly corrupted, as the law must tell man that he has no God, nor regards, cares for God, and worships other gods, a matter which before and without the law we would not have believed. In this way he becomes terrified, is humbled, desponds, despairs, and anxiously desires aid, but sees no escape. He begins to be an enemy of, enraged at God, and to murmur, and so forth. This is what Paul says, Romans 4.15, The law worketh wrath. And Romans 5.20, Sin is increased by the law. The law entered, that the offense might abound. Part 3, Article 3 of Repentance this office of the law the New Testament retains and urges, as St. Paul, Romans 1.18, does, saying, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Again, Romans 3.19, All the world is guilty before God, no man is righteous before him. And Christ says, John 16.8, The Holy Ghost will reprove the world of sin. This, then, is the thunderbolt of God by which he strikes in a heap, hurls to the ground both manifest sinners and false saints, hypocrites, and suffers no one to be in the right, declares no one righteous, but drives them all together to terror and despair. This is the hammer, as Jeremiah 23.29 says, Is not my word like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? This is not octiva contritio, or manufactured repentance, but passiva contritio, torture of conscience, true sorrow of heart, suffering and sensation of death. This, then, is what it means to begin true repentance, and here man must hear such a sentence as this, You are all of no account, 
whether you be manifest sinners or saints in your own opinion. You all must become different, and do otherwise than you now are and are doing, no matter what sort of people you are, whether you are as great, wise, powerful, and holy as you may. Here no one is righteous, holy, godly, and so forth. But to this office the New Testament immediately adds the consolatory promise of grace through the gospel which must be believed, as Christ declares, Mark 1.15, Repent and believe the gospel, that is, become different and do otherwise, and believe my promise. And John, preceding him, is called the preacher of repentance. However, for the remission of sins, that is, John was to accuse all and convict them of being sinners, that they might know what they were before God, and might acknowledge that they were lost men, and might thus be prepared for the Lord to receive grace, and to expect and accept from Him the remission of sins. Thus also Christ Himself says, Luke 24:47, Repentance and remission of sins must be preached in My name among all nations. But whenever the law alone, without the gospel being added, exercises this its office, there is nothing else than death and hell. And man must despair, like Saul and Judas. As St. Paul, Romans 7.10, says, Through sin the law killeth. On the other hand, the gospel brings consolation and remission not only in one way, but through the word and sacraments and the like, as we shall hear afterward, in order that thus there is with the Lord plenteous redemption, as Psalm 137 says against the dreadful captivity of sin. However, we must now contrast the false repentance of the sophists with true repentance, in order that both may be the better understood. Of the False Repentance of the Papists it was impossible that they should teach correctly concerning repentance, since they did not rightly know the real sins, the real sin. For as has been shown above, they do not believe aright concerning original sin, but say that the natural powers of man have remained entirely unimpaired and incorrupt, that reason can teach aright, and that the will can, in accordance therewith, do aright, perform those things which are taught that God certainly bestows His grace when a man does as much as is in him according to his free will. It had to follow thence from this dogma that they did, must do, penance only for actual sins, such as wicked thoughts to which a person yields, for wicked emotion, concupiscence, vicious feelings and inclinations, lust and improper dispositions according to them are not sins and for wicked words and wicked deeds, which free will could readily have omitted. And of such repentance they fix three parts, contrition, confession, and satisfaction, with this magnificent consolation and promise added, If man truly repent, feel remorse, confess, render satisfaction, he thereby would have merited forgiveness, and paid for his sins before God, atoned for his sins, and obtained a plenary redemption. Thus, in repentance, they instructed men to repose confidence in their own works. Hence, the expression originated, 
which was employed in the public when public absolution was announced to the people. Prolong, O God, my life, until I shall make satisfaction for my sins and amend my life. There was here profound silence and no mention of Christ nor faith, but men hoped by their own works to overcome and blot out sins before God, and with this intention we became priests and monks, that we might array ourselves against sin. As to contrition, this is the way it was done. Since no one could remember all his sins, especially as committed through an entire year, they inserted this provision, namely, that if an unknown sin should be remembered later, if the remembrance of a concealed sin should perhaps return, this also must be repented of and confessed, and so forth. Meanwhile, they were, the person was, commended to the grace of God. Moreover, since no one could know how great the contrition ought to be, in order to be sufficient before God, they gave this consolation. He who could not have contrition, at least ought to have attrition, which I may call half a contrition, or the beginning of contrition. For they have themselves understood neither of these terms, nor do they understand them now as little as I. Such attrition was reckoned as contrition when a person went to confession. And when it happened that any one said that he could not have contrition, nor lament his sins, as might have occurred in illicit love, or the desire for revenge, and so forth, they asked whether he did not wish or desire to have contrition lament. When one would reply, yes, for who save the devil himself would here say no, they accepted this as contrition, and forgave him his sins on account of this good work of his, which they adorned with the name of contrition. Here they cited the example of St. Bernard, and so forth. Here we see how blind reason, in matters pertaining to God, gropes about, and according to its own imagination seeks for consolation in its own works, and cannot think of, entirely forgets, Christ and faith. But if it be clearly viewed in the light, this contrition is a manufactured and fictitious thought or imagination, derived from man's own powers without faith and without the knowledge of Christ. And in it the poor sinner, when he reflected upon his own lust and desire for revenge, would sometimes, perhaps, have laughed rather than wept, either laughed or wept, rather than to think of something else, except such as either had been truly struck by the lightning of the law, or had been vainly vexed by the devil with a sorrowful spirit. Otherwise, with the exception of these persons, such contrition was certainly mere hypocrisy, and did not mortify the lust for sins, flames of sin, for they had to grieve while they would rather have continued in sin, if it had been free to them. As regards confession, the procedure was this. Everyone had, was enjoined, to enumerate all his sins, which is an impossible thing. This was a great torment. From such as he had forgotten, but if any one had forgotten some sins, he would be absolved on the condition that, if they would occur to him, he must still confess them. In this way he could never know whether he had made a sufficiently pure confession, perfectly and correctly, or when confessing would ever have an end. 
yet he was pointed to his own works, and comforted thus. The more fully, sincerely, and frankly one confesses, the more he humiliates himself and debases himself before the priest. The sooner and better he renders satisfaction for his sins, for such humility certainly would earn grace before God. Here, too, there was no faith nor Christ, and the virtue of the absolution was not declared to him, but upon his enumeration of sins and his self-abasement depended upon his consolation. What torture, rascality, and idolatry such confession has produced is more than can be related. As to satisfaction, this is by far the most involved perplexing part of it all. For no man could know how much to render for a single sin, not to say how much for all. Here they have resorted to the device of imposing a small satisfaction, which could indeed be rendered as five paternosters, a day's fast, and so forth. For the rest that was lacking of the, in their repentance, they were directed to purgatory. Here, too, there was nothing but anguish and extreme misery, for some thought that they would never get out of purgatory, because, according to the old canons, seven years' repentance is required for a single mortal sin. Nevertheless, confidence was placed upon our work of satisfaction, and if the satisfaction could have been perfect, confidence would have been placed in it entirely, and neither faith nor Christ would have been of use. But this confidence was impossible, for although anyone had done penance in that way for a hundred years, he would still not have known whether he had finished his penance. That meant forever to do penance and never to come to repentance. Here now the Holy See at Rome, coming to the aid of the poor church, invented indulgences, whereby it forgave and remitted expiation or satisfaction first for a single instance, for seven years, for a hundred years, and distributed them among the cardinals and bishops, so that one could grant indulgence for a hundred years, and another for a hundred days. But he reserved to himself alone the power to remit the entire satisfaction. Now, since this began to yield money, and the traffic in bowls became profitable, he devised the Golden Jubilee Year, a truly gold-bearing year, and fixed it at Rome. He called this the remission of all punishment and guilt. Then the people came running, because everyone would fain have been freed from this grievous, unbearable burden. This meant to find, dig up, and raise the treasures of the earth. Immediately the Pope pressed still further, and multiplied the golden years one upon another. But the more he devoured money, the wider grew his maw. Later, therefore, he issued them, those golden years of his, by his legates everywhere to the countries, until all churches and houses were full of the golden year. At last he also made an inroad into purgatory among the dead, first by founding masses and vigils, afterwards by indulgences and the golden year, and finally souls became so cheap that he released one for a farthing. But all this, too, was of no avail. For although the Pope taught men to depend upon and trust in these indulgences for salvation, yet he rendered the whole matter again uncertain. 
for in his bowls he declares whoever would share in the indulgences or a golden year must be contrite and have confessed and pay money now we have heard above that this contrition and confession are with them uncertain and hypocrisy likewise also no one knew what soul was in purgatory and if some were therein no one knew which had properly repented and confessed thus he took the precious money the pope snatched up the holy pence and comforted them meanwhile with led them to confidence in his power and indulgence and then again led them away from that end directed them again to their uncertain work if now although there were some who did not believe acknowledged themselves guilty of such actual sins committed by thoughts words and works as i and such as i in monasteries and chapters fraternities or colleges of priests wished to be monks and priests and by fasting watching praying saying mass coarse garments and hard beds and so forth fought against strove to resist evil thoughts and in full earnest and with force wanted to be holy and yet the hereditary inborn evil sometimes did in sleep what it is wont to do as also saint augustine and jerome among others confess still each one held the other in esteem so that some according to our teaching were regarded as holy without sin and full of good works so much so that with his mind he would communicate and sell our good works to others as being superfluous to us for heaven this is indeed true and seals letters and instances that this happened are at hand when there were such i say these did not need repentance for of what would they repent since they had not indulged wicked thoughts what would they confess concerning words not uttered since they had avoided words for what should they render satisfaction since they were so guiltless of any deed that they should even sell their superfluous righteousness to other poor sinners such saints were also the pharisees and scribes in the time of christ here comes the fiery angel saint john revelation ten the true preacher of true repentance and with one thunderclap and bolt hurls both those selling and those buying works on one heap and says repent matthew three two now the former the poor wretches imagine why we have repented the latter the rest say we need no repentance john says repent ye both of you for ye are false penitents so are these the rest false saints or hypocrites and all of you on either side need the forgiveness of sins because neither of you know what true sin is not to say anything about your duty to repent of it and shun it for no one of you is good you are full of unbelief stupidity and ignorance of god and god's will for here he is present of whose fullness have all we received and grace for grace john one sixteen and without him no man can be just before god therefore if you wish to repent repent aright your penance will not accomplish anything is nothing and you hypocrites who do not need repentance you serpents brood 
who has assured you that you will escape the wrath to come, and so forth. Matthew 3, 7, Luke 3, 7. In the same way Paul also preaches Romans 3, 10-12. There is none righteous, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. And Acts 17.30, God now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. All men, he says, no one excepted who is a man. This repentance teaches us to discern sin, namely, that we are altogether lost, and that there is nothing good in us from head to foot, both within and without, and that we must absolutely become new and other men. This repentance is not piecemeal, partial, and beggarly, fragmentary, like that which does penance for actual sins, nor is it uncertain like that. For it does not debate what is or is not sin, but hurls everything on a heap, and says, All in us is nothing but sin, affirms that with respect to us all is simply sin, and there is nothing in us that is not sin and guilt. What is the use of, or why do we wish, investigating, dividing, or distinguishing a long time? For this reason, too, this contrition is not doubtful or uncertain. For there is nothing left with which we can think of anything good to pay for sin, but there is only a sure despairing concerning all that we are, think, speak, or do. All hope must be cast aside in respect of everything, and so forth. In like manner, confession, too, cannot be false, uncertain, or piecemeal, mutilated or fragmentary. For he who confesses that all in him is nothing but sin, comprehends all sins, excludes none, forgets none. Neither can the satisfaction be uncertain, because it is not our uncertain, sinful work, but it is the suffering and blood of the spotless and innocent Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Of this repentance John preaches, and afterwards Christ in the Gospel, and we also. By this preaching of repentance we dash to the ground the Pope and everything that is built upon our good works. For all is built upon a rotten and vain foundation, which is called a good work or law, even though no good work is there, but only wicked works. And no one does the law, as Christ, John 7.19 says but all transgress it. Therefore, the building that is raised upon it is nothing but falsehood and hypocrisy, even in the part where it is most holy and beautiful. And in Christians this repentance continues until death, because through the entire life it contends with sin remaining in the flesh, as Paul, Romans 7.14-25 shows, testifies that he wars with the law in his members, and so forth, and that not by his own powers, but by the gift of the Holy Ghost that follows the remission of sins. This gift daily cleanses and sweeps out the remaining sins, and works so as to render man truly pure and holy. The Pope, the theologians, the jurists, and every other man know nothing of this from their own reason, but it is a doctrine from heaven, revealed through the gospel, 
and must suffer to be called heresy by the godless saints or hypocrites. On the other hand, if certain sectarians would arise, some of whom are perhaps already extant, and in the time of the insurrection of the peasants came to my own view, holding that all those who had once received the spirit or the forgiveness of sins, or had become believers, even though they should afterwards sin, would still remain in the faith, and such sin would not harm them, and hence crying thus, Do whatever you please. If you believe, it all amounts to nothing. Faith blots out all sins, and so forth. They say, besides, that if any one sins after he has received faith and the Spirit, he never truly had the Spirit and faith. I have had before me seen and heard many such insane men, and I fear that in some such a devil is still remaining, hiding and dwelling. It is accordingly necessary to know and teach that when holy men, still having and feeling original sin, also daily repenting of and striving with it, happen to fall into manifest sins as David into adultery, murder, and blasphemy, that then faith and the Holy Ghost has departed from them. They cast out faith and the Holy Ghost. For the Holy Ghost does not permit sin to have dominion, to gain the upper hand so as to be accomplished, but represses and restrains it so that it must not do what it wishes. But if it does what it wishes, the Holy Ghost and faith are certainly not present. For St. John says, 1 John 3, 9, Whoever is born of God doth not commit sin, and he cannot sin. And yet it is also the truth when the same St. John says, chapter 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. End of Part 3, Article 3 Recording by Jonathan Lane